Welcome to Intermittent Signal. I'm David A. Westbrook. This is Episode 4, Assassination and Authority. The music has been written, performed, and produced by Vince Parlato. Not so long ago, historically speaking, Iranian General Qasem Soleimani was killed by a U.S. drone at Baghdad's airport in Iraq. The day after the killing, I wrote an essay, in haste, albeit thought over years. Subsequent events, reading, and conversation have added a lot, but sometimes fresher is better. I was not then, and certainly am not now, going to attempt a magisterial evaluation of the legal status of the killing, though there will be some law here. I read such an effort, by some German scholar, I think, but I'm more interested in the not-quite-clearly law, as we shall see. I was about to post a version of this podcast and a companion piece on our wars in Afghanistan and Vietnam in February. Then Russia invaded Ukraine. It seemed like the wrong moment for critical reflection on American violence, oddly self-centered. And besides, I thought and think that many nations, including my own, have acquitted themselves well by opposing Russia without widening the war. Much more from politics cannot be hoped. As I speak, the war in and for Ukraine continues. The U.S. and other nations continue to support Ukraine with everything short of kinetic force. Perhaps this is not the right time to talk about assassination, even if many people hope for a coup d'etat in Russia. On the other hand, as many have noted, the invasion of Ukraine has recalled the West to itself. International law, especially as conceived after World War II, matters. States, quote, shall refrain in their international relations from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of any state, close quote, as Article 2.4 of the UN Charter has it. NATO matters, too, evidently. Of course, the UN Charter did not succeed in its aspiration to outlaw war altogether. There have been lots of wars since the UN was founded. But a war of annexation? One might argue that this or that conflict, some but not all involving Russia, might have resulted in de facto annexations, but those would be arguments. In general, the world seems to have rather given up on conquest in the old sense. To quip, while we might not have outlawed war, we do seem to have outlawed colonialization. As I suggest elsewhere, however, this is not an unmitigated good. War without the responsibility of rule poses its own dangers, maybe especially for Americans. Be that as it may, the Russian invasion seemed like a war of annexation. Ukraine is, after all, part of Russia. Ukraine's separation was merely administrative, a Soviet mistake, not intended to convey independence or even, really, an understanding of Ukraine as a separate country. It was said. So, the special military operation was more a reunification than an annexation, perhaps, but a taking of territory at any rate. Maybe not, though. The Luhansk and Donetsk People's Republics were recognized by Russia on the eve of the special military operation. Clearly, these small republics needed defending. And I suspect but do not know that the plan was to install a, quote, government in Kiev as a de facto, but not formal, organ of the Russian state. And so, perhaps even here, formal annexation was not the plan. After the 19th century reforms of the English legal system, the historian F.W. Maitland famously said that the forms of action we have buried, but they still rule us from their graves. So perhaps the forms of public international law Sovereign states upon territories, even if puppets upon dominated land, rule even invaders from the grave? Who knows? Why do grown-ups engage in such games? The significance, in the literal sense of meaningfulness, of tanks rolling across land borders cannot be overestimated. 
Tanks bespeak the Cold War, of course, Czechoslovakia as it was then, and Hungary, but most of all World War II, Germany, Panzers, Guderian, Rommel. I, like many others, thought we had left all that, not necessarily because we had become more civilized, more legal, though we certainly hoped that was the case, but because history and technology had moved on. The invasion of Ukraine with armor was literally surprising because hard to conceive, hard to wrap one's mind around. Just months before the Russians invaded Ukraine, Britain's Prime Minister Boris Johnson lectured a former defense minister, saying that the days of the tank were over. Cyber warfare, now that's what we need to worry about. Irony aside, I digress. It is against today's sense of deja vu, and the renewal of our vows, as it were, that I want to reread the recent assassination of Soleimani, which already seems a long time ago. So, killing Soleimani. How do we think about our law, our violence, and ourselves? The United States killed Iranian General Qasem Soleimani, leader of the Quds Brigade, and much else besides. This much is undisputed by all concerned. Have we crossed the line? And who is we here? The Trump administration? The U.S. defense establishment, including its commander-in-chief? The legal community I'm paid to propagate? The United States, of which I'm a citizen? The world? The we with which we engage the news that presents itself so incessantly? Consumers pretending to be citizens? Just people with feelings? Still, this killing touches on matters I've studied and written about for decades now, and I feel compelled to organize my thoughts. Much has changed in ways I did not foresee, and I'm not sure where I stand now. If we did cross a line, what line was it, and when did we cross it? To start simply and plausibly with classical public international law, Soleimani was a high-ranking official of a sovereign nation, with which we were not at war, distinguishing the wartime killing of Japanese Admiral Yamamoto. Killing him was simply an assassination, which is illegal as a matter of international law, see, notably, the Hague Conventions of 1907, and as a matter of U.S. law, at least an executive order. There's a bunch of custom and so forth to the same effect. End of story. In the unlikely event, I would argue, within this paradigm, for the legality of the president's actions, I would say that the U.S. and Iran were indeed at war. Nobody does formal declarations anymore. Soleimani was waging a war through proxies that he organized. He had just orchestrated an attack on our embassy in Iraq. He attacked our allies, notably Israel, by providing precision weapons to various parties. He shelled our troops and vastly increased the lethality of our adversaries in Syria. Unsovite. Soleimani was not in Iraq on a social visit. He was killed in the company of Abu Mahdi al-Mahandis, the pro-Iranian head of Iraqi militia groups, which have killed and maimed over a thousand U.S. soldiers in Iraq. Had al-Mahandis been a formal subordinate, we would have a field marshal visiting a general. Yamamoto would be on point. So, the claim that the Soleimani killing is not a legitimate attack rests on, a, on an adversary rests on a very formal and rather Western notion of employment and military organization. In June, in response to the Iranian downing of reconnaissance drone, attacks on tankers, and so forth, the U.S. initiated a strike on Iran. Evidently, for political reasons, President Trump called off the strike only 10 minutes beforehand, shocking the Secretary of Defense, the Vice President, and so forth. The point is that attacking Iran directly has been on the table. 
In defending its decision to kill Soleimani, the administration took a somewhat different tack and claimed, plausibly, that he was planning further attacks. Killing Soleimani, then, was an anticipatory act of self-defense. Such acts are discussed in public international law under the rubric of the Caroline Affair of 1837, the contretemps between Great Britain and the United States on the Niagara River, and the subsequent exchange of diplomatic letters. The upshot is that anticipatory actions must be proportionate in a response to a, quote, imminent, close quote, threat. And around this point, the media, members of Congress, and others argued, speculated, bloviated. At this point, we're down to judgment calls. In his most interesting column that I have read, Thomas Friedman suggested that Soleimani, by facilitating the militia shelling U.S. forces, was attempting to bait the U.S. into overreacting in Iraq, thereby increasing Iraqi support for Iran. The U.S. ignored the bait and instead killed Soleimani himself. Proportionate? One can easily argue both sides, if so inclined. I'm not inclined to go on. At some point, this becomes what a dear friend and a great international lawyer calls plumbing. It requires skill, but what are we really talking about? If you happen to care about my opinion, I'd call it an assassination and say it was illegal, but I'm kind of old-fashioned. The problem with the foregoing is its pure artificiality, like arguing over the rules of whist at the World Cup. Understandably, most people want to know what the consequences of this action are, rather than the act's precise status in international law. One's immediate thought is that killing a high-ranking Iranian official will provoke a dramatic counterattack from Iran. Perhaps, but perhaps not. Soleimani was not killed out of the blue. He was the architect of a massive project of Iranian Shiite expansion, carried on at considerable cost all around. Who knows how his killing will realign the matrix of forces? Which brings us to the realm of tactics in the great game, as Kipling had it, although Middle East seems more like a drunken par- poker party gone terribly wrong. In a revealing interview, Democratic Congressional Representative Alyssa Slotkin, a former CIA analyst who served under both the Bush and Obama administrations, discussed the rise of Iran and Soleimani and the U.S. intelligence community's longstanding concerns. And, of course, the U.S. considered its options. Quote, To be honest with you, in the conversations we had on pushing back on him in particular and the organization generally, we almost never spent a ton of time on the possible assassination because there are legal and political and military implications to it. And whenever we did have conversations on exposing him or pushing back on him or doing things short of assassination that would impact him, you had to acknowledge that there would be a strong reaction because his star was on the rise People definitely knew his name, and he sort of had a celebrity status in Iran, close quote. What's interesting here is the arguments are all prudential. Slotkin all but says assassination was not off the table, it just would not have been prudent. The point here is the line had already been crossed, at least mentally. Perhaps, one might say, the line was crossed earlier with the attempts to kill Castro. Yet still... We had renounced that, or so we thought. Slotkin's real objection to the Soleimani killing is not its illegality, but the lack of process with which President Trump took the decision. Responsible presidents, like Bush and Obama, have processes for targeted killing and other things. Professionals discuss ideas, come to agreement, and a policy decision is made. Moreover, there are things that are done by custom, habit, The presidency, she argues, and I agree, 
is only in bare outline a legal construct. Trump often seems to act without benefit of counsel and with little regard for the customs of the office. He is not presidential, one might say, but that would be a political opinion. The Soleimani killing was planned, and Trump took the opportunity. It was clearly thinkable, and the fact that Obama and Bush might not have ordered this particular killing is a matter of circumstance, but not legal principle. Which brings us to the culture of assassination. My father at one point declined to join the Green Berets because the word was they were engaged in assassination. Instead, he fought the NBA in the North. That world seems gone. Popular culture glorifies assassination. Consider the Assassin's Creed series of games or the Jason Bourne movie franchise. Our government's violence itself has become secret. We have little idea where the service is for which we routinely thank members of the military. Even this is not entirely new, but the scope and scale is. However one understands our dirty wars and covert activities in the years from 1945 to 2001, things changed after 9-11. We have been at war, continuously, in multiple theaters and with various deployments, much of which is undisclosed, for a generation now. This has nothing particular to do with Trump. If anything, he has attempted to disengage. In deploying ourselves, Islamist violence and the responsible projection of U.S. force, I argued that violence understood as politics, since Clausewitz, required a narrative, and a narrative pursued by assassination and torture could not be persuasive, and so was unlikely to be successful. Even if we could no longer assume that collective violence would be conducted among nation-states in 19th and 20th century fashion, we could still insist, and as a democracy we were obliged to insist, that the violence carried out in our name was a public matter. Obviously, history went in another direction. Administrations of both parties doubled down on intelligence, drones, special forces, contractors, targeted killing. It became unclear just where we were at war with terrorism, a capacious category. So, for example, Obama ordered attacks on Yemeni soil. When the Trump administration wanted to pull forces out of West Africa, none other than the New York Times looked askance. Little, if anything, in history is completely new. Since 9-11, the U.S. defense posture has been essentially Israeli, or, if you prefer, Byzantine. Once a threat deemed sufficient is identified, we send a bowstring, or as we now call it, even more poetically, a reaper. All those video games with their fantasy imagery. I argued in deploying that there was something fundamentally unenlightened, dark in several senses, about this kind of warfare, and hence in some deep sense antagonistic to the American project of making politics rational, or at the very least visible. But that argument, almost a generation on, appears to be lost. Slotkin mentions, I think very significantly, that the U.S. military architecture dates from 1947. Painting with a broad brush, I would argue that the nation then made three critical, essentially constitutional, decisions that have come to haunt us. First, we would defend the U.S. from abroad. I was born in Germany. From this perspective, killing Soleimani is indeed a defensive act. Second, we would uncouple intelligence from the ordinary military. We would establish bureaucracies, notably the CIA, dependent for their legitimacy on fear, off-budget, and minimally accountable. Third, in light of the first two, and the off-sided need to be able to act quickly, the commander-in-chief would be given essentially unilateral power to initiate violence. 
The president may choose, and generally has chosen, to exercise that power in consultation with trusted advisors, or not. In short, the seeds of Byzantium were planted in 1947. And still, there is something striking about killing a government official. Is there no professional courtesy anymore? Public International simultaneously moves in two opposing directions. First, and most obviously, public international law seeks to rationalize and so constrain the actions of states, thereby, it is often said, reducing that mystical quality known as sovereignty. Second, and conversely, however, public international law reinscribes the state as the essential locus of political life, notably in its insistence on the inviability of borders and evidently officials. Hence, it is one thing for Obama to take out an al-Qaeda base in Yemen. It is another thing for Trump to take out a government official. All adversaries are not equal in the eyes of public international law. Terrorists, like pirates, are not representatives of a sovereign and therefore have no real role in the system. Consequently, killing them does not present a systemic problem. Presidents before Trump engaged in targeted killing, in countries with which we were not at war, under some notion of preemption, with little regard for proportionality, and often in secret. Many of those who are so clear in their condemnation of the Soleimani killing paid little attention. In killing a government official, once again, Trump displayed really bad manners. Appearances matter. As should be clear by now, the architecture of violence envisaged by public international law has little to do with how the U.S. conducts its military affairs. As suggested above, arguments can and will be made that U.S. violence is in accordance with international law, but such arguments are for lawyers, for the most part formalistic, occasional, tend to be disingenuous. I'm not arguing that there's no law here. Everyone involved is legally defined, and most have bounds they will not cross, as the Navy effort to prosecute a SEAL for killing a youthful prisoner attests. But the law is not what we say it is, and instead seems a far more shifting and obscure thing at the edge of collective consciousness. Nor does it seem that any party of the Middle East conflict, or China, or India, or Russia, think and act through the imaginary posited by public international law. Surely Soleimani thought and operated through proxies and shifting alliances, and violence instantiated in countless ways besides a declaration of war delivered diplomatically. And surely, therefore, he thought he was in play. In all of this, The Hague is very distant. Europeans claim to think in classical terms, but French and British involvement, at least in Africa, seems more complicated. And European operators, paid in sundry ways that may be deemed more or less national, flood the bars of Nairobi. While bad manners are to be lamented, the problem is structural. Violence simply is not exclusively organized by unitary nation-states. There are terrorists, militias, proxies, contractors of various sorts. Nor are states all that unitary. Nor are states all that equal in their capacity or responsibility to project force. Writing between the world wars, Weber defined the state as the holder of a monopoly of legitimate force upon a territory. But the world changed, not least because the power to declare war was moved to the international plane. Europe integrated. NATO. Non-state actors emerged. Cyber warfare with complicated relations to state actors emerged, as did terrorists of many sorts, and counter-terrorists too, more or less authorized by some state, to say nothing of armed populaces with their own legitimacy, and so forth. In getting through security, counter-terrorism, bureaucracy, and a sense of the modern, 
Mark McGuire and I take issue with Weber's definition and try to think through the more complicated political economies of force that obtain in places like Nairobi and London, and for that matter, across the United States. This, too, is what globalization means. The nation-state is hardly the only actor, even when it comes to war. It is unclear, to me at least, where we go from here. Surely we should condemn Trump for his lack of breeding and lack of caution. It is one thing for a few Iranian nuclear scientists to die under conditions of plausible deniability, and quite another to take credit for killing the second most powerful leader in the country. If we normalize decapitation operations, it will be very difficult to get business done. But that hardly addresses the deeper project problem. The intellectual structure of public international law that would claim to regulate violence simply does not speak to the structure of our own violence. What, in an event like the Soleimani killing, we claim to be our law substantially fails to engage our practice, or evidently, our aspirations. What would an international law that addressed the mixed political economy of force in which we now live look like? The 19th century classical imagination, even as modified in the 20th century, had the benefit of schematic clarity. No such imaginary appears available for our world, such as it is, at least not to me, today. Well, that was then. Today was January 2020, just before COVID swept the nation, before the killing of George Floyd, before the full-bore craziness of the election, before the Capitol riot, before Russia invaded Ukraine, and before we rediscovered the virtue of international law of the post-world liberal order. In condemnations of the Russian invasion, it is sometimes remarked with an air of knowing cleverness that the U.S. does not have clean hands. After all, the U.S. invasion of Iraq, the second Gulf War, was carried out under false pretenses and was therefore illegal. It seems to be important, perhaps because we are all spectators, to establish and express our feelings about events, to exercise moral judgment. This is odd, but for the record, I too am against invasions. That said, it is not quite clear what but the U.S. invaded Iraq is supposed to mean in the context of the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Assuming that the U.S. merits just as much condemnation as Russia, assuming that we are spectators like little gods capable of weighing such things, the comparison is silly, most simply for the reason that I hope your mama told you, two wrongs don't make a right. The U.S. invasion of Iraq decades ago is irrelevant to the Russian invasion of Ukraine last month. Other invasions by other people in other places at other times are also not the point. One might, I suppose, argue that the use of force, legal or not, is the way of the world. Thucydides, the Melian dialogue, strong do what they will, weak suffer what they must, etc. But, by and large, that's not what people say. The Americans and the Russians are not seen to be following some law of political nature, which would make them as innocent as wolves. Instead, both nations are seen to be deserving moral condemnation, which brings us back to two wrongs don't make a right. For what it might be worth, as a matter of historical contemplation, I think the two invasions, the delusions, fears, and especially the politics, are quite different. The comparison is facile. I do think it matters a great deal that both Russia and Iraq were autocracies at the time of the invasions. But I do not here intend to defend the U.S. for its decision to invade Iraq, nor for that matter to condemn, again, the Russians for invading Ukraine. My point, instead, 
is that such irrelevant and facile comparisons will be made and will carry weight. The issue here is not the truth of the proposition, but the political and moral authority to speak. Insofar as we Americans genuinely desire to join with like-minded societies and renew the liberal international order, and we have no better option, we should govern ourselves accordingly. We cannot effectively argue for a set of rules that we do not ourselves obey. And from time to time, that may mean that men like Soleimani, who we little gods believe should be struck down, who may indeed need killing, will walk longer. This has been Assassination and Authority on Intermittent Signal. Music written, performed, and produced by Vince Parlato. I'm David A. Westbrook. Until next time, be well.